This is the voice of the Trumpet Magazine. News, economy, politics, trends, discovery, health, family, the Bible, the future. This is Trumpet Hour, the week in review. Hello and welcome to Trumpet Hour. This is Friday, February 23rd, and this is our weekend review edition. If you've been listening to the Wednesday edition of the show, thank you that we've been playing some replays on significant topics, and uh, we've heard from some of you. So thanks for listening to those Wednesday replays, and thanks for listening to this Friday Week in Review. We're going to get to a couple of important events that have happened that are easy to overlook, I think. They involve breaking procedure. They involve breaking laws but not breaking laws on the street, more breaking laws in the the courtroom and in the state secretary's office and things like that. So things that can be very easily overlooked. But these things involve, in the case of the United States, which Andrew Miller is going to cover, uh, the method, the only method by which we the people control the government in the first place, which happens to be the original founding idea of this country and a fundamental idea of Britain, which is where we'll, we'll talk about that procedural story uh, with Richard Palmer in the Mother of Parliament. So stay tuned for that. But first, we're going to get to uh, two of our other regions. Our first region is going to be Asia, and then we're going to the Middle East. Jeremiah Jacques, you cover Asia. Uh, first, give us that, the rundown of, of main events that have happened there, and then get us into the, the main story you want us to focus on. Okay, sure, yeah. Well, first of all, a disturbing update about Russian agents in the European nation of Moldova. Russia has really been working ever since the Soviet Union's collapse to reestablish control over Moldova. And in 1992, just one year after the Soviet Union's collapse, the Russians succeeded in conquering a part of Moldova called Transnistria. This became kind of a de facto Russian state controlled by Russian troops, and it has remained a de facto Russian state ever since then. But now, Vladimir Putin seems to be really riding high on recent successes in Ukraine, and that confidence might mean that he is no longer willing to let Transnistria be just a de facto Russian state. In a few days... His agents in Transnistria will be holding a congressional meeting, and reports say that they plan to ask Putin to make Transnistria an official part of Russia. So this would be against the wishes of the vast majority of Moldovans who want their country to lean toward Europe. But if Russia starts up another one of its so-called special military operations, the Moldovans may have very little choice. So, you know, developments like this, I think they should humble those who argue that Russia's expansionist ambitions end in Ukraine's east. It should humble those who say the violence could come to an end if only Ukraine would give Russia some territory. Um, The truth is, and we see this in, in history over and over again, the truth is that giving in to tyrants really only emboldens them. Weakness emboldens expansionists like Putin, and and that weakness just begets more war. The response to Russia's behavior in Ukraine has been very weak, very chaotic for the most part, and as a result, we could soon see war expanding in other areas such as Moldova. Well, and isn't it, I'll jump in, isn't it um, geographically the interest of Russia in Ukraine is not for the eastern part of Ukraine, It's, it's for all of it. I mean, if, if you want a border or a defensible barrier between Europe and Russia, don't you need really Western Ukraine much more than Eastern Ukraine? That's the famous quote from Catherine the Great is, I have no, I have no way to defend my borders except to extend them. Uh, that, yeah, there's not, there's not a great defensible border point within uh within Ukraine that you can anchor down on. Maybe you've got the Dnieper River flowing through the middle there, but but that's not a nice dividing line between kind of Russian-speaking or non-Russian-speaking zones. If you push all the way through Ukraine to the other side and kind of include Moldova in that, you can start to anchor yourself on the Carpathian Mountains and you do start to have more of a geographical border. Right, and I believe that's what uh, Putin really, really wants is uh, because it's uh, Ukraine's kind of a very large driveway into the interior of Russia if you're actually in all-out war. Uh, Moldova there, as you kind of mentioned, down on the, on the southern uh, and western side of Ukraine. So as you say, uh, we're talking about expansion here, not, not just a limited special military operation. 
I also think it's interesting, just this week, Dmitry Medvedev, a very close ally to Vladimir Putin, he uh, went on record saying, we actually want all of Ukraine. You know, maybe sometimes we talk about negotiations, all we need are these four provinces here in the East. But he, uh, Medvedev, a couple of times now has said, no, we want the whole thing. And it, it's somewhat surprising, just why would they make that known so publicly? But I, but I think it is obvious that that is the, uh, the reality of it. Um, but anyway, moving on here, another quick story just about China and Taiwan. This week, tensions continued to just soar over the Kinmen Islands. These islands are Taiwanese, but they're only a couple of miles from the Chinese mainland. So many analysts think that China will end up taking these islands first in the war for Taiwan when, when that happens. And in recent days, we've seen a Chinese ship collide with a Taiwanese Coast Guard ship. That collision resulted in the death of two Chinese nationals. And um, ever since then, the Chinese have been just swarming this area. So the tensions are very high, and it looks like it could really explode into something serious there at any time. But then the big story is that tomorrow marks the two-year anniversary of Russia's full-scale war on Ukraine. It was February 24th of 2022 when all of those Russian tanks and troops crossed the border from Russia and Belarus into Ukraine from three different directions. And Almost right on time for that anniversary, the Russians have had a notable victory in the war by capturing the eastern Ukrainian city of Avdivka. So since, um, since Ukrainian positions in the city were so well fortified, Ukrainian forces were able to kill or wound several Russians for every casualty they suffered. Some numbers say as many as seven to one or even eight to one, favoring the Ukrainians. Um, and even pro-Russian reporter Andrei Morozov admitted that about 16,000 Russian soldiers were killed in the process of taking Avdivka, and around twice that number wounded. And then it looks like Russia also lost around 400 tanks as well in this four-month-long campaign to take Avdivka. So there were just, you know, extraordinary losses for the Russians, even more than the Soviet Union lost in almost a decade of war when it was fighting in Afghanistan. But even though the victory came at extraordinary cost to Russia, it does represent the first notable change on the war's front lines in months. And it comes at a great time for Vladimir Putin because this is a triumph that he and his propagandists can point the Russian people to in the lead up to next month's presidential elections. So this, you know, this this victory will give Putin's quote unquote reelection a veneer of legitimacy. It'll also go a long way, I think, toward facilitating his plan to mobilize hundreds of thousands of additional men to fight in Ukraine. And even though Avdivka itself is of questionable strategic value, if Putin's forces can keep on advancing past it, they'll eventually threaten some far more strategic locations. So it's about 12 miles from Donetsk City. It's on the high ground. So it's a good place to launch attacks towards Donetsk from. And so Russia has been for years trying to retake it to create a little more of a buffer zone around Donetsk City. That was Ian Lovett there, a foreign correspondent for the Wall Street Journal. And that shows that Russia's capture of Avdivka could really mark a turning point in Russia's favor, and it could bolster Russia's overall momentum in this war. And just as a side point, you talked about uh, the heavy losses that Russia uh, has suffered, uh, well, throughout the war, but but in this particular battle. And uh, the blogger who revealed that, Alexei Morozov, you mentioned, um, apparently, uh, we're see well, he's, he has died, and uh, supposedly by suicide. The timing on that is, is strange, especially when you put it near uh, all the other suspicious and somewhat obvious uh, things that have been happening to journalists and the opposition figures in Russia. Yeah, for sure. I, I think it was many people were pretty surprised to see him revealing these numbers that show probably the reality because he's always been a pro-Russia reporter and blogger. But he's saying we have suffered catastrophically to take this little bit of land. And then uh, it turns out that the government was extremely upset that he would 
you know, published these figures that painted Russia in a negative light that made it sound like they're, you know, doing these meat waves and that they don't value human life. Um, so we don't know all the details, but a couple of days later, he put a bullet in his head. And and there are others who have died in uh, with mysterious timing under mysterious circumstances. And, and a lot of that traces back to the Russian government, but the very, very top of the Russian government. Yeah, that's right. I, th I think a lot of this goes straight up to the top. We, we see Vladimir Putin more and more uh, following in the footsteps of his predecessor, Joseph Stalin. And, and I think that we should know that regardless of whatever happens in this war's immediate developments, you know, this week or this month, and as really as nauseating as it is to consider it, we should expect Russia to most likely emerge victorious in this war. And that's because of what Trumpet editor-in-chief Gerald Flurry has said about Vladimir Putin's role in a coming Asian alliance. There are several Bible passages that talk about this massive multinational alliance. Um, it's, it's discussed in the books of Daniel and Joel and Revelation. And then there's one especially detailed passage in Ezekiel, mostly chapters 38 and 39, Verse 2 of Ezekiel 38 says that this Asian alliance will be led by an individual that Young's literal translation of the Bible calls, quote, the prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal, end quote. And Mr. Flurry has said, I believe since late 2013, that these three names refer to Russia and two of its key cities, and that this passage is describing Vladimir Putin. So he explains all that in detail in his booklet called The Prophesied Prince of Russia. And um, the booklet shows that Putin's most momentous days still lie ahead for him. So however it happens in the near term, we should expect Putin to survive the current war and to go on to lead a colossal Asian alliance. We've mentioned this before, but uh, that booklet, The Prophesied Prince of Russia, a surprisingly detailed and, and specific uh, prophecy, or rather explanation of, of Bible prophecy. Uh, the prophesied prince of Russia connects a book written millennia ago, Ezekiel, to Vladimir Putin. You can get that at thetrumpet.com slash library. From Asia, we move to the Middle East. Mihailo Zekic, what has been happening in the Middle East this week? This is something I have to wrestle with every week. There are so many things happening, and one doesn't know which one's most important to put into the main story. But just today, there's been reports that Israel has sent a delegation to Paris, uh, including Mossad chief David Barnea and Shin Bet head Ronan Barr, to start hostage negotiations as mediated by the United States with Egypt and Qatar. According to uh, Israel's Channel 12, uh, the Israeli uh, one member of the Israeli government said that there is, quote, reason for optimism for whatever these talks will produce. We'll see if that bears any fruit uh, today or tomorrow or next week. Uh, going back further earlier in the week, speaking of Egypt, uh, Egyptian President Abdel Fattah al-Sisi had a conference with oil companies on Monday, and he stated that... Uh, the revenue that Egypt is collecting from the Suez Canal has dipped to about what ha it was half this time last year. In January of 2023, revenue from the Suez Canal was at about 804 million U.S. dollars. In January 2024, Egypt got about 428 million dollars from that. That's obviously in response of what's going on with the Houthis and their disruption of trade in the Red Sea. Egypt is a very shaky, very top-heavy economy. There's a lot of uh, rich people at the top, a lot of lot more poor people at the bottom. Not many people in between, and not a lot of that money filters down to those poor people, even to feeding them. The Suez Canal is one of the lifelines that keeps the Egyptian economy alive in the first place. Now that this is going away, who knows what this means for Egypt going in the future? And also, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu just released his. First written statement on what Gaza post ground invasion is to look like. It's not really much that we didn't already know. We said that Israel should have uh, leeway to operate in Gaza as long as there is a security threat. 
that he uh, wants to control or Israel wants to control the border between Gaza and Egypt. Again, nothing we didn't already know, but it's the first time that uh, Netanyahu is publicly putting out a formal set of plans that he intends on using as a framework for the future. And then your main story here looks interesting. It's about Hezbollah. Yes, so we're uh, picking up uh, where we left off last week, in a sense, talking about Hezbollah and talking about their stability. In this case, it's about documents that Israel has been able to uh, get a hold of as they're going in through Gaza, as uh, obviously the intelligence services are still doing what they're doing. The Washington Post recently had an article that was... uh, published on the 18th, citing an anonymous uh, member of Hezbollah about a recent meeting that Hezbollah had with Iranians that came to visit Lebanon. They didn't specify when this meeting happened. The Iran obviously has deep connections in Lebanon. But the main th- thing that they're focusing on, uh, we talk on this program a lot about is Hezbollah going to invade Israel? Is Israel going to invade Hezbollah? Where are these tensions on the northern border going to get? This Hezbollah operative just told the Washington Post Iran's uh, view of this. This is what the, his summary of what the Iranians told the Lebanese, quote, Netanyahu is squeezed in a corner right now. Don't give him a way out. Let us not give him the benefit of launching a wider war because that would make him a winner, end quote. This is basically Iran telling Hezbollah, don't do anything to provoke Netanyahu to invade Lebanon. We don't want him to do that. The Post uh, piece also spoke about how a lot of Iran's main objectives with the war, like stopping Saudi Arabia from recognizing Israel, those have been achieved. And right now, Iran is getting more from the war. But if Netanyahu were to invade Lebanon, then that would make him the winner in this conflict. The big question is, how would that make him the winner in the conflict? At this point, you look at what happened with Gaza. Everybody in the international community hates him. Uh, there's really no easy way out on what to do with Gaza. Obviously, it was a huge, uh, October 7 was a huge victory for Iran in just terms of losses of lives and how many Israelis they are able to snuff out and scar the collective minds of Israel. If there was a war with Hezbollah, with how well armed they are, which we've spoken on this program before, that the human suffering in Israel, even if Israel were to fire the opening shots, would be catastrophic. But somehow they think that Netanyahu would be the winner if this were to happen. And the only thing I could see why they would say that is if they thought Netanyahu had a realistic chance of uprooting Hezbollah from Lebanon on taking this threat and neutralizing it and making sure that they're not a threat anymore. And if the Iranians are that nervous and if they're telling Hezbollah, the group that exists to destroy Israel, to stand down and not destroy Israel, how weak are they in Lebanon? We've talked about before and how bad the economic situation is in Lebanon, how much everybody there hates Hezbollah. Looks like the situation there is even worse. That was one of the stories I wanted to bring. There was another um, related story that relates to October 7th, going back months now. Israel had uh, obtained documents that Hamas and its leader in Gaza, Yahya Sinwar, were actually expecting Hezbollah to join in the fray in October to invade Israel in the north and to start taking bits of Galilee. But Iran stepped in, according to these Israeli sources again, and told Hezbollah to back down, even back then, even in October 7th, when Hamas and the Iranian proxy were on the on the rise when israel was backpedaling some people suspect that the reservists in the north caught on to what was happening and mobilized before something could happen but according to israeli intelligence this is based off of an article that ynet news published that iran wanted hezbollah to be around as a in case if israel say destroy their nuclear program or that kind of thing as a way to retaliate against israel but not as a way to support hamas for one thing Considering Iran wants to wipe out Israel, I don't know why they tell Hezbollah that. But also, it looks like Iran didn't think that if this were to happen, that it would succeed. That if Hezbollah were to have intervened, then it wouldn't have worked out that well for them. Again, there's a lot of unknowns here, and there's obviously a lot the intelligence communities wouldn't be telling us. But 
with how much we talk about Hezbollah and how powerful they are, I wouldn't say they're a paper tiger. They're definitely not. But their strength and their ability to wage war and their ability to win wars is probably a lot shakier than most of us realize, if that's what their paymasters in Tehran are saying. So just to recap, evidence found in the Gaza war zone shows that Iran controls Hezbollah, indeed, which we already knew, and that when Hamas in the southwest committed the atrocities of October 7th, and we found out more about those atrocities this week, too. If you have the stomach for it, you can just search for the words Hamas and rape. And immediately after those rapes, those murders, those murders during rapes, the terrorist army of Hezbollah, far, far more powerful than Hamas, was ready to spread that horror show into the north. But Iran, its sponsor, said no. And we remember Germany, its potential enemy, uh, also said no. And Hezbollah gave that big speech on November 3rd and did nothing. So we can see that conflicts involving Hamas or Hezbollah and Israel are really between Iran and Israel. Yes, but as far as Lebanon is concerned, we don't expect it to stay that way. As I spoke about in the program last week, we expect Lebanon, whether or not Hezbollah is still there, to side with Germany. Uh, most likely, though, that would imply Hezbollah is out of the picture somehow. And if they're this week that Iran is admitting that they're that week, uh, they could come sooner rather than later. If our listeners would like to learn more, I have an article on the website right now called Why Iran Told Hezbollah to Stand Down. That's Why Iran Told Hezbollah to Stand Down. Right. And I and that uh, we talked about that Germany angle as well. You can also look at on the website for as you watch Gaza, watch Germany. Trumpet Hour is the uh, the voice of the Trumpet magazine. We do want you to uh, read the magazine, subscribe, go to the Trump dot com slash subscribe, go to the website, uh, subscribe to the the daily uh, email at the Trumpet dot com slash brief. And you'll get Mr. Palmer's thoughts day by day through the Trumpet Brief. You're listening to Trumpet Hour on KPCG 101.3 FM. We'll be right back. Thanks for staying with us. Our third region this week is Europe. Richard Palmer, you've been watching Europe all week. You've been thinking about what you've been watching and what is worth telling our listeners. Europeans do not play with fire. That is the message from a senior Houthi who is, you know, Donald Trump may be banned from social media, but he is not. That was in response to the European Union finally approving its own military mission to the Red Sea, the Houthis threatened more attacks on Europe in response to that. Like you and Mihailo were just talking about, this is a this is a key component to watch Europe getting more involved in the Middle East. And we saw some very significant steps towards that this week. Some breaking news just from the last couple of hours. The EU has unblocked funding to Poland. They restricted funding or they cut funding to Poland over what they said were rule of law concerns. Nothing has changed on the rule of law front. If anything, it has gotten worse. They've unblocked them because Poland had a new government. That is what this was about. The European Union attempted regime change in one of its own countries and succeeded it. Share prices for German armed companies are hitting record highs this week. Rheinmetall at an all-time high. You've had, I mean, it is Big, it reminds me of kind of dot-com boom time type of figures for German arm companies. Like one company had a, an IPO, uh, like where they went, they sold shares to the public for the first time ever. And two weeks later, the shares are close to double what they were on the day of the IPO. So uh, you know, boom time for German arms companies, as everyone is expecting a lot of German arms sales. And another that relate, story that relates to this kind of conflict between Europe and the Middle East, and that is you had another big kind of mass violence in The Hague in the Netherlands, a country that li likes putting articles in front of its names, I guess. But uh, you had mass riots of Eritrean groups clashing, uh, and the mayor called the violence disgusting and unacceptable. But that's the kind of violent outbreaks that are becoming more and more common all across Europe and even the United Kingdom. 
So as as interesting as as deathware manufactured by Germany and uh, these other events have been, uh, we're actually going to talk about for the main story something I mentioned earlier, which is procedures in Parliament. Yes, rules in Britain's Parliament that could be famously arcane. I think one of my favorite involves a guy with stockings and a black rod having a door slammed in his face. Uh, in this occasion, it was you know, rules about what amendments get put forward on a particular boat. What's important is they were changed in response to fears of Muslim violence. They were changed as a basically a Muslim mob was outside parliament projecting genocidal slogans onto Big Ben in an atmosphere of violence and intimidation against MPs. And they changed the rules uh, out of fear for MPs' lives. And you know, there's a couple of aspects to this story. We have led in a minority now that is terrorizing the country. You could say if we're changing, it's not much of an exaggeration. If we're changing how we vote, if we're producing different resolutions in parliament because we're afraid that this minority is going to start killing our elected leaders, they are terrorizing the country. So this was about uh, the Labour Party. They said that they were basically afraid of the, for the lives of their MPs. The, the Speaker of the House of Parliament got up and said, look, I don't want to I don't want there to be another MP murdered on my watch. I see lots of credible threats. You'd be astonished at the kind of threats that I see that get put across my desk. Uh, so I let this amendment through so that so that the Labour Party would have this opportunity to vote on a ceasefire, because if its members didn't vote on a ceasefire, they were afraid that that they would be that they would be threatened. And you know, two years ago, an MP, Sir David Ames, was murdered by an Islamic extremist. And one of the reasons he cited for murdering this this man was because he was a member of the Conservative Friends of Israel group. So you know, this is not an this is not an idle threat. You had a Conservative MP this just last week, who had Palestinian protesters target his home. Another MP is standing down after his office was set on fire because of his support to Israel. So you know, this is a a very real problem. But then also, well, where's the backbone of our MPs? Where is the, the courage to say we're not going to submit to this kind of violence and intimidation? And you know, we are this is this is the mother of parliaments. This is supposed to be an example of how democracy functions to the rest of the world. To give in to the mob shows, I think, a major spiritual sickness within the country as well. And rules in parliament are are not nothing. They are arcane, and that's <laughs> kind of what's great about them we've been doing this this way for decades or for generations or uh, or for centuries in the case of of parliament and and everyone knows that that that's how we are going to to run this thing if you are british this is your government these are your representatives this is in effect you and what you as britain as a nation are doing is changing your government to respond to threats of violence. As you said, failing to resist threats of violence. Well, then now does it just become a competition for who can threaten the most violence to get what they want? Uh, it's This is a, a serious problem. And so when we're talking about, like like you say in the in the trumpet briefs, you know, this is more than just uh, procedure. And and I think that uh, in our, our next segment, too, we're going to talk about procedures, rules, laws, that don't seem to have uh, immediate effect. And yet it's your entire form of government that, that we're talking about and, uh, and everything that, that comes with that. So that's right. And if you look at, um, you, you look at it as well. Okay. Today it was maybe a procedural rule that people don't really care about, but if we're changing things due to violent, well, what is it next? Do we change British foreign policy? Do we stop selling certain arms to Israel or pass a different resolution in the United Nations because of fears of violence? When does it become domestic law if we're going to change things for fears of violence? You know, do we do we start adopting practice you know things from Sharia law because we're afraid of it? Do we do we start making concessions on alcohol sales or? Uh, um, women's dress standards to appease Muslim. Like, where does it stop? Exactly. I think that's important. Exactly. And I think the other. If you're if you're British, like at some point you say no, we're not doing that because this is who we are. But there is no this is who we are. <laughs> Once you start down that slope. 
I, I think this and then in some of the stories from the United States, you know, it's got a very last days of Rome feel to it, the news this week. You, you know, that's how it was at the end of the Roman Republic, where mobs determined what were the, what were the laws were passed out of fear of whether you'd be beaten up going home from the Senate or not. And who controls the mobs controlled the country basically for for a time period. That this is why people welcome dictators like Julius Caesar and like Pomp because they had an army behind them that could put down the mob. Right. And then you you, know, you see you see what you're having in America now, where if you get out of office, you're going to be hounded to the courts and ruined through through specious lawsuits. And that's how Rome Republic the Roman Republic fell as well, where it was like, like if you handed over office you would be destroyed. And the only way to stop that was to be in office forever. I mean, these are end of democracy ending level problems. Right. And it's not a majority of people who want this. It's just enough people who will be violent enough who want these things. And and succumbing, you know, the government submitting to that is, yeah, last last days of the Republic type type stuff. Again, I say that the radio show represents the the magazine and the website. Where can our listeners go to kind of get more on this idea? So I have an article on the website, Britain's Migrant Crisis. I wrote this before this happened. But you know, I think what is this is what is really fascinating about this is what we're seeing in Britain and America is cause and effect. We are doing things that are causing these problems. But at the same time, this is also fulfilled prophecy like the bible specifically describes us doing these things and it gives us great detail on what the effects will be and we're starting to see those effects and they will get worse i mean you look at uh deuteronomy 28 as a chapter all about blessings and cursings cause and effect do these things and it will cause good things do these other things it will cause bad things one of the bad negative effects is the stranger that is within you shall get up the very high and you shall come down very low you know that that's describes Britain this week. The, the immigrants that you let in are going to start dictating your your nation's laws. And then what in, in this article, Britain's Migrant Crisis, I just went through the book of Hosea. And that is a book directly addressed at prophetic Ephraim. And we talk about how this describe this is Britain in Bible prophecy. And I mean, just go through the book of Hosea if you want p- proof of that, because what is in there is just so applicable. The problems that it highlights are the problems that we see today. It talks about foreigners coming into the country, and it talks about foolish leaders allowing that to happen. It talks about you know, family problems leading to this. And I think that's you know that's a kind of an unspoken cause of mass migration, where due to our family problems, we have a mental health crisis. We have millions, literally, of people out of work and on ill health benefits. So the government feels like they have to welcome in migrants, or the economies will collapse. Like. This is all being caused by problems that are outlined in the Bible. And you know, that book outlines the solutions and it outlines the results of those causes. So it's a, uh, you know, the Bible provides the analysis that we need to understand the world and it provides the solutions that uh, we c- and the only ways really at this point to turn these things around. That was Britain's migrant crisis. And that's going to be part of it's on the trumpet.com. But it's also going to be part of the print edition that we are finishing up uh, in, the, in the coming days, uh, early next week. Uh, Britain's migrant crisis. Look for that online and look for that in the print edition. Now we come to Anglo-America and Andrew Miller, you and I have talked about something that it's kind of in a, in a same way, similar to the, these, these procedures. It's not something that happened, you know, on the streets of New York or with a, you know, gunfire or, or, you know, mass groups of, uh, of, uh, people fighting or something dramatic like that, but it involves masses of people and it involves, um, nothing less than the form of government of the United States. Uh, but before we hit that, get, hit us with the uh, main stories from Anglo-America that you've noticed this week. Yeah, Australia announced plans to double the size of its Navy to counter the rising threat of China. Thousands of Americans lost cell phone service on Thursday after two major solar flares uh, took place the night before. Uh, and the Biden administration is expediting plans to create a Palestinian state. So each of those is is important. I know you're uh, you you're interested in what the effects might be of electromagnetic pulses. So it's interesting that uh, telecommunications outage. Uh, some people say it's the solar flares. Some people said it was a hack. Some people said it was just some sort of error. But uh, it's it's uh, chilling to imagine what something like that could do on a longer 
uh, term, especially if it was an intentional act by a by a foreign adversary. But let's get to this thing that a lot of people would overlook, but to you and me is just a bombshell. They've had uh, a couple big exposés, uh, one by the Epoch Times, one by the Heartland Institute, published this week on mail-in voting. There's just really just one eye-popping statistic that uh, caught my eye, where the, the Heartland Institute, they did a poll last December of a 1,000 people, and based on that poll indicated that there was evidence that possibly up to 28% of mail-in ballots may have been filed fraudulently. Now, a thousand people is not a huge sample size, but just for fun, uh, the Heartland Institute took the official mail-in voting tallies in the six major swing states and subtracted 28% of the Biden votes and 28% of the Trump votes. So one-to-one. They they took 28% of the mail-in votes cast for Biden in swing states and deleted them. And 28% of the votes cast for Trump in swing states and deleted them. Uh, and with that, with those ballots out of the pool, Trump won the Electoral College in a 300 electoral vote landslide. So whether you, whether you believe the statistic about the 28% being fraudulent or not, it's the idea that it's like it was mail-in votes in swing states. Yeah. That put Biden over the top. If you well, just look at and, and no matter votes. who the candidate, no matter who the candidate is, the 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 Democratic candidate relies heavily, completely, on mail in ballots. Right. If it was not for mail in ballots in swing states, like I said, the Republican would have won the last election in a landslide. And so you can definitely see why. <laughs> There's a lot of political turmoil in America over mail-in ballots is because uh, whether mail-in ballots count or not determines which party gains the presidency. Right. How many How many mail-in uh, – what percentage of votes were mail-in votes in 2000, Bush versus Gore? Oh, slightly over 10, 10 point something. So 10 – I think 10.1, 10, 10. 10.2%. So 10% of voting was mail-in voting at that time. Yes. What is it now? That 10% figure doubled to 21% when Trump ran in 2016, and then it doubled again uh, when Biden ran in 2020. So it's actually 43% of all votes cast in the United States – so ten percent, ten percent. Okay, people in in a democracy, you have exactly one way of controlling your government. You don't vote on on treaties. You don't vote on uh, tax rates. You don't vote on what uh, uh, are these big trade deals. You don't vote to go to war. You vote for your representative. That is the one and only way that we the people uh, control their government. Uh, in two thousand, it was. had mail-in ballots, these ballots that are clearly, obviously, more prone to fraud than actual in-person, same-day paper trail voting. After the Obama administration, when it was Clinton versus Trump, it went to 20-something percent. Yeah, 21%. Now we're up to 43% of voting is mail-in voting. And it was last election, it went up for 43% because they said, well, we need to do this because of the COVID quarantine. Uh, now the story's changing uh, where there's legitimate, just serious discussions about completely changing the way America runs elections. Because there, there's 28 states, um, including the swing states of Arizona, Georgia, Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Wisconsin that currently offer no excuse mail-in voting. You can vote by mail if you want to. You don't have to say, like, well, I need to vote by mail because I'm a military guy deployed in Okinawa or or some other excuse. And there's uh, a number of states, uh, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, like I think like eight states plus the District of Columbia, where the majority of voting is mail-in voting. That's crazy. So you've got eight states where the mail-in voting is the primarily way of casting a ballot. 28 states where, yeah, you can do it. No excuse mail-in voting. And a pretty strong movement to just make this the way America runs 
elections, which is concerning because there's a I haven't checked to see if they've updated it. But I, like last I knew, like the majority of nations in the European Union, like have strong laws against mail-in voting because they know that it's far easier to have fraud with a mail-in ballot than it is to have fraud if you show up to a poll. That, that's why actually Donald Trump, one of his campaign promises if he returns to office, is that he wants to institute same-day paper balloting in America so that, like, you have to show up at the – you have to show up at the poll and cast a paper ballot that can be audited afterwards. So it's like if there's any questions, you can just go back to the poll. It's like so there won't be any of this um, – electronic voting, mail-in voting, absentee ballots, uh, unverified signatures, basically all the question marks that are hanging over U.S. elections would be done away with if people just went to a polling station and cast a paper ballot on election day. So in the same way that the mother of parliaments changed how it governs in a small way, based on intimidation, based on threats, based on uh, the threats of violence. Uh, the states of the United States are changing, have changed how we the people control the government or if we the people control the government. Uh, you're very quickly heading for a situation where you are not voting for the people who govern you, which was the whole problem between uh, the Americans and Parliament and the King in the first place. So just how you know the Constitutional Republic of the United States has changed massively already. And Andrew, you've pointed to Editor-in-Chief Gerald Fleury's book, America Under Attack. You can get that at americaunderattack.com. Welcome back to Trumpet Hour Week in Review. We thank you for listening to the show and sticking with us for the roundtable discussion. If we ever make this a television show, we'll need to get Jeremiah and Andrew an actual roundtable, don't you think? <laughs> and the other half would have to be over there in England, where uh, from from which uh, Mihailo Zekic and Richard Palmer join us each week. But Mihailo Zekic, uh, you suggested for the roundtable topic this week, the Munich Security Conference. So tell me, what is the Munich Security Conference? And honestly, make me care about it. Well, some people call it the Davos of Defense. It is the annual gathering of world leaders, of policymakers, of people in charge of militaries in Munich, Germany, to talk about the biggest threats in the world, what the global community going forward should get ready for, how to deal with them, that sort of thing. It's ha happened since 1963. And this year had a lot of the big names that uh, we could expect at this kind of conference. Uh, U.S. Vice President Kamala Harris was there, as well as Secretary of State Antony Blinken. Uh, Israeli President Isaac Herzog, I might mention him a little bit later. Of course, lots of uh, German figures, Chancellor Scholz, Defense Minister Pistorius, uh, Foreign Minister Baerbock, all these people we keep bringing up. Uh, the United Nations Secretary General Antonio Guterres was there. Today's global order is not working for everyone. In fact, I would go further and say it's not working for anyone. Our world is facing existential challenges, but the global community is more fragmented and divided than at any time during the past 75 years. Even the Cold War era was in some ways less dangerous. He uh, said that on Friday, the conference lasted from last Friday, last week's Friday to Sunday. And it certainly sets the tone of what a lot of the global community is thinking that now is more dangerous than the Cold War. It takes a lot of a uh, lot of stuff happening in the world for somebody to say that. Now, if you listen to the rest of his speech, he was talking about how we need to strengthen international institutions to solve this like his own. But uh, a lot of other people, it was it's a good forum for figures from different perspectives to come over and say what's on their mind and to preach to the public what their vision for the future. 
Yeah, I just wanted to mention that uh, Russia was not invited this year since the, you know, the Europeans thought for some weird reason that Russia is not interested in working toward peaceful resolutions. Can't imagine what might have given the Europeans that idea. Um, but Russia was not invited. And, and actually, it was just a few minutes um, before the conference officially began that news arrived there that Russian opposition leader Alexei Navalny had died or been killed in prison. So, you know, I think that could be viewed as pretty strong vindication for the decision not to invite Russia. Um, but anyway, China was invited, and, and the Chinese used this occasion to deliver what ended up being a really combative speech. It was Chinese Foreign Minister Wang Yi who gave the speech, and he spent a lot of, a lot of it just defending China's ties with Russia. China has, you know, maintained very close ties to Russia, even despite Russia's war on Ukraine. China has even been found to be assisting Russia's war in some significant ways. But Mr. Wang basically told the rest of the world to shut up about it and stay out of China's business. And then at one point, a moderator asked Mr. Wang if China would agree to abide by a code of conduct in the South China Sea. And Mr. Wang laughed in his face <laughs> and, and just repeated some of China's lines about Taiwan having been under the Communist Party's rule since the universe was formed or something like that. He also chimed in about the Israelis and Palestinians, saying that the Palestinians need to be given a state so that they can live in peace with Israel. Of course, he didn't bother explaining how this was supposed to deliver peace, but he is a Chinese diplomat, so we're supposed to just go along with it. Um, Mr. Wong also warned the nations of the world against trying to disentangle themselves from the failing Chinese economy. He said, anyone who tries this is making a, quote, historic mistake. Then just for good measure, he denied that China is oppressing its people in Xinjiang, China. So basically, at this conference, the Chinese did what the Chinese do best at these kinds of conferences. They get up on their soapbox, sermonize, lecture the world, basically spew out a bunch of arrogance and Chinese Communist Party propaganda, China good, West bad, for anyone who will listen. That's how. That reminds me of of what Mihaly Zagas wrote about in the the Trumpet Print edition about the United Nations and taking us back to the forming of the United Nations and you know it's, it's these types of things. We call them a security conference. We call the nations united, yeah. but it's just a forum. I mean, it is better than all out war, but but uh, it is a forum, a microcosm of all the lies, all of the strategies, all of the human efforts uh, to. Um, to get security, but sometimes security through deception and destruction. I feel like the Munich Security Conference this year got me asking, got me asking existential questions about this show and the way <laughs> that we manage the new. Like, I don't know. I, so I thought we just had a really important article this week from Trevor Editor in Chief Gerald Flurry: Signs of Germany's Startling Rise. Because I really feel like I'm MSC'd out. Like, they gather every year and they say the same thing every year. And, you know, I kind of come up every kind of come away. Thinking, like, yeah, but you said this 10 years ago. Are you going to actually do something? And I think what can happen with, you know, this is this is a, a weekend review show. We're focused on the events of last the last week. And if you think of that, you know, the saying, seeing the forest for all the trees. This is a show where, by its very nature, we focus on the twigs. That's kind of what we have to do. What changed this week? You're looking at smaller bits. And so that was kind of a bit of how I was feeling after the Munich Security Conference. Security Con like, you always talk about the need to rearm. When are you actually going to do it? And I really appreciated this article from Mr. Flurry, Signs of Germany's Startling Rise, because it does take that step back. And it does make the point that, you know, okay, actually, if you stop looking at this on a week-by-week -week basis and look at this more on a decade-by-decade -decade basis, there have been some massive changes. You know, that, that absolutely is, is correct. Like, I remember after its Munich security conferences in the past talking about Germany increasing its defense spending from 1.1% of its GDP to 1.3% of its GDP. And we were kind of making the point, this is a big deal. It's still tiny, but they're increasing it. They're not cutting it the way that they have been. And now they're spending 2%. Now they're the biggest military spender in Europe. 
And that's but that's happened with a series of incremental changes. And if you're looking at it on a week by week basis, each of those incremental changes can can look very small. But if you do stop for a minute and and step back and look at how far Germany has come, and Mr. Flurry, this article takes the full sweep of of, of eighty years since the end of World War II. It has been astonishing and remarkable, and there have you have been some very big changes. And then yes, we're waiting for more changes. But those changes can happen very quickly, and Germany is in a position to make those changes very quickly. So I think that view from higher up, uh, I just really appreciate it, and how when you take that view from higher up, so much of what the plain truth prophesied about Germany has happened already. And we can see so much Bible prophecy of this strong Germany leading a united Europe and nations giving up their power uh, to to Germany. You know, we, we're really seeing that, we are seeing that happen before our eyes. So another conference has come and gone. Men have sat in an air-conditioned room and talked about security and uh, sermonized and lied and obviously kept the really good stuff secret because it is a security conference. And yet, although that's the twig we've looked at this week, like you said, when you add it to uh, the forest of of things that have happened, uh, especially over the past lifetime, more or less, uh, you do see a forest of of fulfillment of the things that the plain truth was talking about uh, eighty years ago. So we'll keep uh, updating you on the twigs as they come. And I remember when I when I first joined the department, you you probably remember this too, gents. When when very much smaller, much more insignificant things were the news of the day for Asia or for Europe or for for whatever, and we we would all be talking about something that was very small compared to uh, the things that we're talking about uh, as these weeks come and go. So as these weeks come and go, we will continue to update you on the twigs and and paint the picture of the forest for you, direct you to the articles on the website and in the print edition that do so. Uh, that is all the time we have for the roundtable and for Trumpet Hour this week. Email us your thoughts on the program at lettersatthetrumpet.com. And we thank our panel of trumpet writers Richard Palmer, Jeremiah Jacques, Andrew Miller, and Mihailo Zekich. Thank you, Parker Campbell. And this week it's Jesse Hester doing the sound engineering and production. But thank you, most of all, for listening to The Week in Review. And we look forward to being back with you again on Trumpet Hour.